Couched lets you in on what leading cultural influencers and psychoanalysts are thinking about the world today. We will feature conversations with artists, scientists, and changemakers about our current political climate, social injustices, and our struggle to find sanity in an increasingly uncertain world. Hello, I am Dr. Billy Pivnik. And I am Dr. Romy Redding. Welcome back to Couched. We would like to start first by welcoming our newest co-host, Dr. Almas Merchant. Almas, also known as Ali. She's a longtime colleague and friend of Couched, and we are so delighted to have her on our team. Please do go to www.couchpodcast.org to read about her many accomplishments. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to be here with Billy and Romy. I have to confess, I'm quite the fangirl of the podcast, and I'm deeply honored to be asked to be a part of it. Hosting, as an Indian, has always held an element of reverence and care for me. Guests are avatars of the gods, after all. But more personally, I grew up in a home that always had folks over from different walks of life, and I learned early on the joys of engaging in quality conversations with others. So I'm quite looking forward to doing that here. Allie, through our years of working together at the Association for Psychoanalysis, Culture, and Society, I've come to know you as a curious, enthusiastic, hardworking, and insightful colleague. I so look forward to the ways your experiences will help us open up new ways of exploring the breadth and depth of the issues we talk about on Couched. Plus, we always have so much fun together. <laughs> yes, we're thrilled to have Allie share her presence and her ideas. And as you likely can already gather, we're fortunate to have her. And we're eager for our listeners to get to know her and to learn from her as we have over the years. And I'll say her joining has really re-inspired my own commitment to bringing our audiences these conversations that really highlight interdisciplinary exchange of ideas and modes of thinking. And speaking of such conversations... We are thrilled to welcome one of the most influential philosophers of our time, Dr. Judith Butler. They are a distinguished professor in the graduate school at the University of California, Berkeley, and the author of several books. Most recently, What World Is This? A Pandemic Phenomenology, which we will be discussing a bit today, as well as The Force of Nonviolence and Ethico-Political Bind, Parting Ways, Jewishness and the Critique of Zionism, and of course, gender trouble, feminism and the subversion of identity, among many others. We also welcome Dr. Ken Corbett, esteemed psychoanalyst and clinical assistant professor at New York University's postdoctoral program in psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. He is the author of Boyhoods, Rethinking Masculinities, A Murder Over a Girl, Gender Justice Junior High, as well as a treasure trove of psychoanalytic papers that have come to define relational thinking. Please go to our website to read more about their many achievements and published works, www.couchedpodcast.org. Welcome back to our audience, too, and thanks to Judith and Ken for returning to Couched. I guess we're doing something right. We're eager to get into what I'm sure will be a vitally important discussion of the ways in which the pandemic has affected and continues to affect our lives. So, let's begin. Judith. As the three of us were discussing the book, in addition to digesting the many compelling arguments that you put forth, we found ourselves to be quite curious about how you managed to gather the presence of mind to make such rich meaning out of the experiences of the pandemic, while so many of us continue to struggle to do so. Well, thank you. Great question. I also want to say I'm really pleased to be back on Couched and especially pleased to be in conversation with all of you and and Kenny, who is one of my closest interlocutors in life. This is a real wonderful uh, opportunity for me. I'm not quite sure what drove me to make meaning out of <laughs> the pandemic, but I think I write, sometimes I write from a certain melancholy. I'm at, at a loss in some ways, I'm grounded, I'm, I'm restricted in my movement, and yet I have this one thing, which is uh, my mind and my ability to write, which I hope I can hold on to for some more years. And I think that being alone 
with myself in an enclosed space has always been a great chance to to think for me. I think I could track that back to my childhood. But I also think that it was really quite startling to suddenly realize you couldn't hug your friends, you couldn't be close. And I just was feeling the palpable loss of that in many domains and thought to myself, well, what does that say about our everyday life that we don't always understand? I mean, how how much do we take casual intimacy, proximity for granted? In New York City, I mean, life on the subway is unchosen proximity to people you do not know. I mean, you do choose it because you get on the subway, <laughs> but you don't always choose the situation you find yourself in packed. And suddenly those slightly uncomfortable or even pleasurable experiences of being close to others became dangerous. And I thought about that, that we actually need this kind of proximity to live and to be well at the same time that proximity or what we might call the porosity of our bodies, the fact that things move in and out, we actually rely on that porosity to live at all. And on one level, it's it's kind of a simple claim. Like, yeah, you have to eat, you have to breathe. <laughs> and you're dependent on food sources and good air to be well. On the other hand, we couldn't take very much of that for granted. It also, of course, led me to think more about climate change. Like, what about the air? What about the soil? <laughs> What's happening? These fundaments of life, not just human life, but living processes more more broadly. So, you know, I think we were stilled by the pandemic, or many of us were. So sometimes the world emerges in a new way from a position of being rendered dysfunctional in the world. It suddenly becomes an object for contemplation in another way. So JB, one of the things that I found myself as I was reading, and I guess I see my task here today to be the interlocutor, to use your word, who's moving between psychoanalysis and phenomenology in, in this instance of your writing. I took some notes here that maybe will help us to try to move through. I want to say here, first off, I know JB as Judy, and I'm trying very hard to call her JB and be professional here, and have known her for many, many, many years, and have known her work and treasured it. And there's something about this book that really touches me. I've, I've been very touched by it. I'm touched by its reach into the world. And the book asks, what world is this? And in part, this world is now a world with this book in it. I'm very happy about that, I, I want to say. But as, again, to go back to what I was saying, I identified a, a various ways in which we were not still, and they have a lot to do with sort of psychological um, phenomenon that I noted. And you capture in your ways as well through phenomenology. So the first not being still that I found myself thinking about was anxiety. And especially the initial onslaught of anxiety that many of us experienced when the pandemic first emerged. And the ways in which I think there was a kind of terror at hand. And in that terror, there was a mix of fear for sure, and a kind of ragged grief, I would call it. And there's something that you quote from Shaler that I, I would just like to enter in here because I, I think it captures that moment. He says, a kind of atmosphere in which an uncompromising and inevitable destruction of value takes place. And I think we were all in the midst of that destruction, and it was uncompromising on the level of the psyche for many people. And I, I have a few clinical moments that I thought maybe I would share with us. And, and I, I wonder, you and I have often had the good fortune to share the clinical moments together and think together about them. It's one of my favorite things to do. 
So one of them is of a patient of mine who took a daily jog. She was a jogger and she jogged about five to 10 miles a day. This was one way in which she could move out of her fear and her terror. But she about I don't know, a month or so into it, two months maybe, she learned that daily she had been jogging by a nursing care facility, which was later revealed to have been a place where many, many people had died and where they had stashed bodies in a closet. It was one of those sort of horror stories that that emerged early in the pandemic. And it made me think of the ways in which we were all, as you put it, living in relation to the ambient illness and death. Death and illness have been quite literally in the air, is how you put it. We're often left not knowing how to mark and mourn those who have died. And caught in that space, my patient could no longer run. She stopped running. And she stopped running for some time. Eventually, she got back She got her breath back, but she had to change her path. She couldn't no longer run by this nursing home near her house. And I wonder what your thoughts might be about that. Well, thank you, Ken. I appreciate that. Uh, You can actually call me anything you want as long Mm. as you call me. Just or as my grandmother would say, just not call me late to dinner. <laughs> yeah. I think that many of us did live with the ambient sense of illness and death, although some of us lost people or some of us became very ill or some of us are still dealing with long COVID, which I think is a massively underestimated and unacknowledged reality. The New York Times gives you those statistics every morning, like it's going down. That's like still 60, 70,000 people. And where are they and who's not counted? And then why is there no statistic for long COVID? Is long COVID something that is hard to account for statistically? Do Mm -hmm. we rely on stories and reports of another nature? Has anyone come up with the measures? But they probably are. But I'm not sure those measures will yield the reality we're looking for, but they might be part of it. Some part of that being in the world. I mean, I was in Berkeley in February and March. We were able to walk up, you know, to the hills and around the parks and were not thwarted in the way that people living in small apartments in New York surely were in the middle of bad weather and monstrous COVID numbers, but also Maybe as a contrast to the, the radically unsheltered who suddenly were told to shelter in place, but there was no shelter and there really was no place and who were very often abandoned to the illness or to the weather in ways that turned out to be unconscionable. So I think there's some dissociation, you know, to our walking and our running that we require, right? We can't be like face to face with death and dying all the time and still live well. On the other hand, There's a kind of denial that some of us could engage in because we were sheltered and had uh, relatively good surroundings, although nobody could shelter us from the death of a parent or a friend. There's no fabulous house that shelters you against that. And so I do think the question of of breathing, where you could breathe, where you had to stop breathing, where you you held your breath, where, where you could still trust your breathing to be part of the regeneration of your life rather than the end of your life, right? And that's the the kind of terrible paradox. Like, Mm. what am I running by? What am I walking by? What am I not taking in? What am I unwittingly taking in? There's a kind of paranoia around breathing, and I don't mean by that a pathology that needs to be, you know, fixed, but rather a kind of heightened attention to aspects of bodily life that, you know, for the most part, we, those of us who are not radically autoimmunologically compromised, don't pay attention to. I wonder if I could just go back a couple of steps to think about the walk 
and the park and the greenery and, and let's say the fabulous house that will protect you, right? So I have two other examples. I actually have three, but I, and one I really want to get to. But one is a young man who lived near a, a very beautiful park and he would walk his dog around the beautiful park. And one day he took note of refrigerated trucks that had started to accumulate along one side of the park where there is a hospital. Once again, like my other patient, he could not go back. He could not go back to the park. And in addition, even though he lived, I believe, four or five blocks away from the park, he was convinced that he could hear the sound of the motor of the refrigeration in his house and was haunted, literally haunted, by the sound of refrigeration. And I, I think the inevitable destruction and the uncompromising and inevitable destruction. And so the park did not shelter him, and his lovely house did not shelter him. Similarly, I, I work with an older person who very poignantly said to me at one point, that he didn't have two years to live inside. And he wasn't sure he had two years to live, which was a a moment of really incredible gravity in the room. But at one point, he told me that someone he knew had died, and he attended a Zoom funeral. He put a mask on before he turned to the screen for the... Zoom funeral. He caught himself, but he, he knew he was going to be in the presence of others in a way that he had not. And how our minds uh, moved in these ways that superseded reality, that the terror moved us into states of unreality and broke down, as you put it, I think I might think of it as disavowal our disavowal of what was going on around us, the the way in which you can see with one eye and not with the other. At at least, uh, I think for for many people, that's what was happening. But it broke down. Is there a way that phenomenology helps us to understand that? Or is this a way in which psychoanalysis and psychology is a a companion to phenomenology? Well, Max Scheler's writing in the teens, he's aware of Freud, sometimes he'll go over there and cite it, but he's also trying to, you know, it was also a time where phenomenological psychology was being elaborated, and he certainly is one of those people who wrote on different emotional states, including sympathy. He has a kind of famous book on sympathy. And this little piece on the tragic is something I discovered in college and I've been clutching, you know, for many years. Like one day, I'm, one day this is going to be useful for me. And of course, the key phrase um, that he gave me relates to the, the tragic. He says the tragic is a quality of the world. It's not just a quality of this play or this character. The tragic is a quality of the world and it manifests itself to us under certain kinds of conditions. And when we say that we are horrified or shocked or amazed by a particular event in the world, if that event is tragic, we will also be compelled to say, what world is this in which such an event can happen? In other words, it's not just that the event is horrific, if it is, but that the world in which it can happen is indicted. (laughs) this event indicts the world. (laughs) You know, there are states, and I'm sure psychoanalysis can help here in ways that Max Scheler could only gesture toward. Like, what is that state in which, you know, you lose somebody violently or you lose many people in war violently and quickly and unexpectedly, and you ask, what world is this? Like, not the world I was taking for granted, not the world that I was moving about in with relative ease more or less, 
this whole world, whatever we call the world, is now indicted or changed or radically altered such that the world I live in is no longer the world I used to know. And that's not just a turn of phrase. It actually describes a kind of experience of the horizon of experience itself. (laughs) And we're not aware of it all the time, but there are limits to how we understand the world. There are limits to how we understand ourselves as living in space and time. If we call those horizons, like horizons in the sense of limits beyond which we cannot see or imagine, then suddenly what has delimited the world, what has contained it for us or made it a container for us, is no longer established steady through those steady parameters, right? The steady parameters of the world are shaken. And that means that I don't know the world I'm living in, and yet I still have to live. It might be understood as a kind of existential disorientation, which is not just a question about myself, but I didn't know the world could contain this. I, I didn't know this could happen. Maybe I did know at an abstract level, but at another level, I did not know. So, you know, the world is a, is a phenomenological category. The very first article in the Journal of Phenomenology, the Phenomenological Research, Philosophy and Phenomenological Research, you know, back like in World War One, was dedicated to the concept of the world. And it would be wrong to say it's a subjective phenomenon, although it is partially that, for sure. What Shaler actually wants to say is that this is a potential of the world. This is objective in his sense. So, you know, the place where I I think probably I could have gone more deeply into psychoanalysis is on the question of bodies. Merleau-Ponty, who makes a, an appearance somewhere in the middle of this book, really worked against the idea that we are these discrete bodies that kind of enter knowingly into relations with other bodies. Of course, that's true at one level. But for him, to be a body is is to be related to other bodies. That's part of what a body is. It's not just what it sometimes does. The body has to be rethought as a relational category or a relational phenomenon. And over and against the existential individualists of the day, like like Sartre, he really insisted that we are intertwined with each other in ways that that go overlooked or get refused by forms of strict individualism. I think he even goes so far as to say we are interlaced, right? Interlaced. Which, which takes on, that for me, a kind of stronger, I don't know, the I'm not sure what to call it, the affect or the punch of interlaced, the force. Yes. But it seems more than intertwined. That's true. It's, you have to undo the knots to get out of interlacing. Yeah. Um, intertwined, you might be able to more easily find your way out. It's true. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. But that interlacing, I mean, it's not fusion, right? We're not fused, we're not like one body, right? And, you know, there is this, we're still kind of distinct even as we're interlaced. But what's the rage and fear that comes up in the middle of that kind of interlacing? (laughs) You know, where's the, the radical need for individuation or breaking free or the fear of engulfment? Like, I feel like that's where psychoanalysis could maybe make that, or I'm sure, make that scene of interlacing much more problematic than than Merleau-Ponty does. I do think this is a place where psychoanalysis could and is. I think certainly through Laplanche, it would be an example of how the body is entered, as it were, through unconscious fantasy. Uh, there are a variety of other people thinking along these lines as well. We are all composed of the atoms of others, as it were. And so, too, I would suggest our psyches are composed of the atoms of others, sometimes rather vexingly. One of the ways in which I think it's either you or Shaler, you say the world itself seems to be an object immersed in sorrow. I think bodies were also objects immersed in sorrow. Yes. So I was just very struck and still am very struck by the kinds of defenses that people developed in an effort to overcome these anxieties. So I work with a young boy who um, developed during this time an obsession with time 
And he was obsessed with how long was he going to have to wait until he would say, it is gone. He repeatedly would say, how long am I going to have to wait until it is gone? And, you know, I think what we could see here was, and I tried to help him to whatever extent I could, understand he was a 10-year-old at that point, a human who is beginning to practice some individuation and separation from a family and suddenly found himself back in, you know, his... It was already his childhood bedroom. He was back in this family unit, and I tried to help him see that he was overwhelmed by the interdependency and the porosity, to use your phrase, that he was having to then lean into. Just as he was trying to lean out, he got pulled back in. And so, you know, he he was, I think, very anxious about how he was going to be able to go forward. How was he going to be able to get out, as it were? And time became his way. And he actually developed a tick where he would look at his watch. And this developed into a sleep disorder. And he couldn't sleep. He had to wake up in the night in order to know what time it was. You know, eventually we found various ways for him to take his watch off. He he would have what he called watchless Thursday, I believe it was, and he would not wear his watch. He found his way, thankfully. But I think the the drenching and the inability to breathe and finding one's way out was very much at hand in the beginning, at least I would say. It takes us back a little bit to the earlier example of the, the gentleman in the park. And I mean, it's pinging from a few of the different topics that have been brought up. I was just struck by how, in one way, as the world is yielding this new reality, this tragic reality, and we're, what world is this? He's having that contact with that, and then he wants to get away from it, right? He wants to not see it, understandably, of course. And then it returns to him in the form of sound. But something about, if, if either of you could speak to how you might think about that return, because the world's yielding this tragic reality, and then there's the desire to get away, the disavowal, and then yet the return of it, mm-hmm. and then not getting away. Yes. I mean, I think I mean, what's interesting, I mean, there are many things that are interesting to me about the examples that Ken has, has offered us, but that refrigerator sound is exemplary of this situation where, on the one hand, the refrigerator is this everyday life. Let's hope for people who have them. And we rely on it to feed ourselves. It's part of our our life-regenerating practice. And yet, it can and has contained the dead, and it's contained the dead en masse, which we saw, I mean, I think first to the images from Italy, and then Ecuador, and then New York City, really. Didn't know it was coming home, but it was coming home. And I think the the very means that is supposed to be regenerating life, like air, refrigerators become the the signs of death or the vessels of death or the the containers of death. It's almost as if the everyday world we take for granted is upended and what is supposed to feed us and let us live is actually precisely what threatens us with death or immerses us in unbearable sorrow. And I think that's part of what was so confusing and difficult for people is that what you expected was life-affirming, the walk, the run, the run in the park. This kind of being caught in the moment of what should be life, what should be joy, what should be ethical proximity and assistance. And so many healthcare workers knew that as they moved forward to ill people, they were obviously risking their lives and possibly the lives of others. And there was no good answer, right? There was no good answer in in those moments. Similarly, for people who were delivering food or delivering services, they were in factories, they were in trucks with others, they were exposed. And they had to work in order to live. And by working, they jeopardized their lives. That sense of the radical unsafety of the world that should have been giving joy, life, friendship, closeness, food, air, 
it's like the fundamentals be kind of turned on us in a certain way. We also, oddly, I think, and it's really worth saying, that people recognized each other's vulnerability and a kind of shared or common vulnerability, which is why the networks of care were so impressive. People did find ways of connecting, even if it wasn't like, you know, as intimate as it could have been, as spontaneous as it should have been under usual conditions. They did find that. And, you know, there are so many moving stories about networks of solidarity and, you know, what the what the British feminists call the de-domestication of care. Care does not just happen in the household. Care happens throughout communities and with strangers. There are a whole lot more people now working on the question of finding decent shelters for unhoused people in this area than there were before. There's an alertness, like, what about the people who could not shelter in, you know, like a, a kind of awakening to the basic needs of other human beings. So I do think there were, apart from fear, grief, terror, and paralysis, there was also forms of care, even love. Solicitude was a word that kept coming to mind, like a perfect stranger making sure you're okay. That kind of thing was and remains, I think, quite impressive. I think to complicate and elaborate on this example of the young man and the refrigerated trucks, and as Romy points out, the return, I, I suppose we could hear this as the return of the repressed in one way, right? That he, he had made some effort to repress what it was that he experienced. But I don't, that's not satisfying to me in this particular case. I don't think he did repress it. In fact, I know he didn't. I think it was a kind of an infection almost. It, 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 it got in him and he could not get it out. And infection. in part, yes, exactly. Yeah. And in part, and to move toward another area of your thinking in this book, he was uh, also haunted by his belief that the truck, he's a white, young white man, he was quite convinced that the truck contained the bodies of black and brown people, and that he lives with his boyfriend is a, a black man. And so there, he, in part, his inability to go back and his, he became for some time quite frozen and was trying to freeze his boyfriend. <laughs> he was trying to keep him inside. So if anything needed to be done, he would go do it such that his boyfriend did not have to leave the house with some, you know, exaggerated notion of his boyfriend's susceptibility. He was a very healthy young man that wasn't necessarily at risk. But he was as well, I think, haunted by this idea of, you know, the lives of worth, as you call it. And he couldn't shake it. And he worked a lot around these ideas of his uh, entitlement and what it was that he had that others did not have. He eventually got COVID and got excellent care. And at that point, you spent a lot of time reflecting on how he was able to have that and other people were not. So um, maybe we can move here a little bit to this idea of, you know, the, the who has a grievable life and who has a livable life, which I think is such an important part of this book. And in, in a way, there's, there's a bit of a hinge with this particular patient who, interestingly, at this point, is working on a project for the unhoused, <laughs> which, uh, you know, I... It's I not think surprising. It, yeah. It's not yeah, yeah, surprising. Yeah. Before we go there, can I just uh, add one thing? It, yeah, it's sure. That in your description... We're talking about different forms of containment. He wanted to contain his boyfriend. He wanted to protect him, contain him within the house. Please stay home or don't go out. Don't imperil your life by leaving this container. I will provide this container for you. Mm -hmm. Stay here with me. We mm -hmm. will be contained. It will contain the two of us together. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a container that's not containing life. That's containing death out there. And how to distinguish what's out there from in here when permeability is the issue. 
I just think permeability makes it really hard to have a kind of containment that you can trust because what that line, that delimiting line that produces the container, this is inside, that's outside. So Judith, you address this in the book to some degree when you're talking about the ways we feel other people's losses, right? You said the loss that the stranger endures echoes with the personal loss one feels. So there's the psychic permeability too. And you have this really beautiful line, our bonds are forged from echoes, translation, and resonances, rhythms, and repetitions, as if the musicality of mourning makes its way past borders by virtue of its acoustic powers. Wow. And I, I wrote that. It's such a, <laughs> yeah, you really, you wrote that. It's just incredibly lyrical and beautiful. And it created an association for me. It stimulated an association for me because for me, Part of COVID was also being able to be in nature more and being out in the air and out among the world, right? So the world was also more real in a certain way that wasn't always tragic, but was permeated with tragedy. So I can remember being in my garden and my pink magnolia tree starting to bloom and the daffodils and the tulips, you know, it's very sensate, red and yellow, and and the birds were coming back and chirping in at the same time, in the distance was the constant Greek chorus of ambulances going by. Um, and I don't know if you remember, it was just one ambulance after another after another, wailing. And a few weeks later, as the death toll was mounting and the petals had come off my magnolia, I was sitting in my garden playing on my cell phone a cello solo, um, East of the Aegean by Mikos Theodorakis. And a common mentor that Romy and Allie and I have, Sparrows Orphanos, introduced me to this beautiful music. And while I'm sitting there, this flight of 20 birds suddenly perched in another tree, in a redbud tree, and started to sing along with this mournful melody. And it was such a moment of just, you know, it was sort of close to rapture and at the same time, totally tragic and somber and the awe-inspiringness of the real world, right? And when that ended, I thought I'd play another song, so I put on Beethoven, and all the birds flew away. It was like they <laughs> knew it was not a moment for triumph. <laughs> it, was a little, it was a little too triumphant for, for the sadness and the permeability of the moment. But I just, I, I was really inspired by your writing. That's a great story. Thank you. I'm just... Uh, aware as you were speaking the idea of this the sirens wailing you know like was the grief there too were they crying yes yes that's what they were absolutely was crying you know was was there ever a halt to the crying was there was it punctuated (laughs) the world was crying right it's not not just you and me but the world in which we live the world was crying and you you said also in that same passage that the intervals you know the intervals between the whales right are like the things that were linking us so again it's about the air the silence the spaces you know that create that sense of interlacing and permeability right and rhythm you know it's interesting billy i have that passage marked in my notes as well and i was going to bring it up toward the end because there's this question of how do we remember? How do we memorialize? And I started to think as I read that passage, well, maybe the way we will memorialize is through music. Mm. Maybe it is music that will be able to capture something about this experience that a, a statue at a certain point, but maybe it is music that will actually be how we will memorialize what has taken place. Yeah, because we do need to mourn and we do need to memorialize because in memorializing, we recreate the social links that were severed by the terror and by the lockdown, right? And by the germs. Also, I think music can also obviously memorialize and give us joy at the same time or in succession. And of course, the joy... Joy can be manic. Joy can be in denial, like, oh, you know, it's all over, like manic joy, like, yay, there's no, 
there's no COVID anymore, which is not true. Like, let's get on. Let's not think about it. Let's not look back. Let's not tarry because we want to get on with life. And now we have a chance and all that. That's obviously not exactly joy, but there are forms of joy that are manic and worrisome. But there are other forms where the survivors must affirm life in some way. And uh, mourning can be a way of not only affirming the lives that are past, but forging solidarity with the dead and allowing for that continuing mode of acknowledgement to move us forward in communities of care. So I, I want to say that music might link or interlace <laughs> memorialization and a joy that is more than a personal, but more than personal at the same time. One of my favorite lines in the book was, our ethical obligations are afflicted with opacity. And I think partly because I struggle with that myself, that it spoke so much to me. I'm thinking about a particular moment in time when the pandemic was raging in the U.S., but the pictures we were seeing were coming out of India. The death tolls in India had skyrocketed and my family lives there. And it was in April of 2021 and I had already been vaccinated. And I was on the phone having a conversation with a florist to send flowers to my mother for her birthday. This was the most absurd conversation I might have ever had in my life because there were no flowers, there were no boxes, and I was trying to choose the right color because I wanted her favorite flowers to be sent to her because that was the only thing that I could do in that moment because I could not send her a vaccine. I've been thinking about that moment over and over again because this woman who I was on the phone with, who I was absurdly being entitled about the kind of flowers they wanted, was in her own trauma trying to sell me flowers. Oh, mm. Right. Mm. And, and so there's this kind of like, I just want to do something moment yeah. and I'm feeling helpless and I just yeah. want my mother to have pretty things. Yes. But, and that's my personal connection. And then I'm doing this thing to this other person who's obviously not well in the middle of everything. And so I keep thinking about that and this line of yours and wondering about the name of the book itself, the title of the book, what world is this? And I wonder about the moments in which, at least for those of us who have not had to wonder this all the time, that has sort of penetrated, right? And then all the work we do, as we've been talking about, to shut down those parts of ourselves that are being penetrated by that notion, what world is this? How do we continue to have that authentic communication with those of us who have always known what world this is? this kind of aspirational we that you speak to, the we that you're imagining that we could create. I guess the reason I come back, come to the story with my mom is because there's a psychic kind of survival that had to take place for my mind. And I could not conceptualize another person in that moment. Yeah. I actually find your story to have some beauty in it because it's like you've, you've called this florist. You're trying to do an impossible thing. You're trying to do what people do and they care for somebody and it's their birthday and you're sending flowers, right? It's like, can we, for the moment, act as if this transaction is possible and that my mother is going to be able to receive this? And it's like, yes, let's do this, <laughs> even though even though there's very little chance that this is going to work out. But, you know, there's there's a kind of beauty in the gesture and going through those movements, even though you know, like, this is a massively precarious operation and supply chains are down and nobody's going anywhere and, you know, the whole thing. So, I mean, there's something kind of lovely in the pas de deux that you had with that for, you know, you were both kind of like, okay, let's recreate this world for a moment. You know, the world in which this was possible. You could have sent your mother flowers, you know? I don't know. That seems like uplifting to me in a, in a strange way, even though it's afflicted with an unbearable sorrow, right? <laughs> I laugh because it's too sad. But I also think that Parts of the world that have experienced mass death or that are more susceptible to very serious epidemics were not as surprised, or people who 
live with completely failing infrastructure, right? Like folks in Lebanon right now or certain places in North Africa, like, like, well, yeah, like nothing's working, nothing's arriving. We don't have the healthcare we need. And parts of, of the United States as well, especially in the South, where, as we know, a lot of healthcare facilities are not affordable or accessible to predominantly Black population in certain states. So certain things that were like shocking for me as a bourgeois intellectual living in a pretty nice place were actually kind of like not so shocking to others in different parts of the world. Like, okay, you know. Yeah, welcome to our world. Yeah. And I think that's really important because, you know, when you live without healthcare or the assumption that healthcare will be affordable or available, you have a sense of your life as something that could pass easily. You or others close to you, your lives could pass quite easily. You, you're extinguishable. You're regarded as extinguishable in this world, structured in this way, right? So getting back to the question of grievable and ungrievable lives, I mean, of course, I would say every life is inherently grievable. Like every life, life should be grieved if it passes, of course. But to be alive and to understand yourself as an ungrievable life, if I die, I will not be marked. That sense of ungrievability permeates certain lives where there is no shelter and there is no health care and there is no food that can be relied on, where food supplies are poisoned or, or not accessible. So when none of us had health care that could possibly help us, we briefly, from different classes and from the global north and different centers of privilege, we briefly got a sense of what it meant to live in that kind of condition of precarity. But I think that one of the, the things that's been most important about this pandemic is that it has illuminated for us who finally does have access to healthcare and who does not. And whose lives will be safeguarded, whose lives will be kept alive, and whose lives will be let go implicitly by policy or implicitly by structural inequality of this kind. And those are at once psychic ways of living and economic ways of living, social ways of living that are intertwined in some pretty profound ways. I think it's no accident that Black Lives Matter emerged in the midst of the pandemic. It was like, our lives matter too, you know? Yeah, I agree. Even the structure of the marches looked like mourning processionals and funerals. Yes. I mean, that they were so completely different sides of the same coin. There's something that JB was just saying there about whose lives will be valued and, and go forward, right? Uh, who's not going on. One of the things that I'm seeing in some of the children that I treat is a enhanced fear with respect to how lives and what one of my young patients refers to as a common world will go on. It's not only about climate. It's a lot about climate. It's a lot about the potential for further viral infection and the reoccurrence thereof. Uh, this uh, boy tracks these kinds of things in one register of his mind. But I just want to read a short sort of exchange between the two of us, because I think it captures something about how where children are, many children are at this point in time. And mind you, this is a boy from a white upper middle class family. But he says to me, he sits down and he says to me immediately, it's very difficult to see how people in this country or in this world will come together in the name of common good. <laughs> now, before that, I must say he didn't start there. He did start there by telling me about his birthday that was coming the next weekend and how happy he was to think of the money he was going to get. <laughs> That's, this is an important thing. He tells me this. Then he shifts to talking about how he doesn't have faith in a common good. And I say to him, it's hard to trust that goodwill, uh, you know, that good will bring people together. 
And I'm mindful of an incident at his school where good did not come together, but I don't make that link at this point. And he says to me in this sort of amused and ironic way that he has, I trust you've heard of capitalism and greed. <laughs> and, and oh, yeah, celebrities. <laughs> and I, I laugh just like David did. And I said, yes. And the way they infect us all, right? And I said, even you, right? You you started the session by telling me about your birthday and the money you were going to get and how I think you were talking about wanting a new iPod or iPad. Probably. And he says, and he says to me, don't distract me. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> and then I say to him, but that's just it. Capitalism and shiny new things distract us. And it leads us to forget that we are all intertwined and that, you know, it leads us to forget the common good. It leads us to forget the need to make the common, as you say it. Yes? And he pauses for a minute and he says to me, don't distract distracted me. At which point I laugh. And I say to him, well, you know, I guess it's hard to trust how we'll find ways to make a new world. And at this point, he looks at me very intently, and I says, it's hard to think about how to share. Having just read your book, I said to him, you know, I, I think you know what ethics are, right? And he shakes his head yes at me. I said, ethics are going to have to change in some way, and that's hard to do. And he nods at that point, and, and we stop there. And afterwards, I find myself thinking, but perhaps there is some recognition between us of sorrow and the sorrow that he and I have together endured, right? And the need for collaboration and that we cannot really live without each other. But how hard that is, right, in the thrall and the thrill of the horizon of childhood. I mourn for these kids that optimism, that we that you refer to, right, which is aspirational. I see a lot of parents are are very concerned and feel at a loss. Yeah. I'm sure you, you all see this in your practices all the time. And we're so grateful to you because, you know, you are also indispensable workers, I just want to say. So maybe the world this is, is a world in the making. Let's hope. Let's hope. Let us hope, indeed. Indeed. Amen, I would say. <laughs> I really felt like it needed an amen. <laughs> so I shared this with the group after re the recording stopped, and we thought we'd like to add it here as a little epigraph. It's a haiku that I wrote in March 2020. Bird calls bubble, spilling onto weary ears. Then sirens slash through. Thank you for listening to Couched with Drs. Billy Pivnik and Romy Redding, brought to you by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association. Mm -hmm.